Good morning, everyone. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. We're the creators and editors of Earth Rights, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin. The views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 6 of the second series of the Earthrights podcast. Today we're in conversation with Inez and Chela, who are or have been Extinction Rebellion activists in Portugal and we're going to be talking about some of the difficulties that they've had in setting up Extinction Rebellion in Portugal, some of the power struggles within um, running a decentralised organisation, gender inequality, personal struggles and the general principles surrounding Extinction Rebellion which, which are incredibly important for us to understand and hopefully um, very inspiring. So let, let's just introduce Shayla and Ines. So Shayla, you want to go first? So my name is uh, Shayla. Uh, you can also call me Shay. I'm uh, 31 years old. I'm from Lisbon. I am Portuguese. Uh, you can say that I'm an activist for a better word. <laughs> Uh, in the climate change movement, also in feminism, um, also in uh, indigenous rights uh, collectives. And I've been doing activism in Lisbon for for around two years now. And uh, yeah, that's me. (laughs) So my name is Ines and I'm French, but I've been living in Portugal for almost three years now. Um, I can say that I was an activist. I'm not going to lie. I'm not so active anymore, I guess. Uh, as I was before, and there's some reasons why I guess we'll be talking about it in this podcast. But um, I was, yeah, I was working with Shala for a while on Extinction Rebellion in Portugal, and I've learned a lot about activism then, and, and like activism in Portugal as well. So really excited to share our experience on this podcast. So um, just first of all, to give a little bit of background on Portugal and and climate change in Portugal. Um, So Portugal was actually under a dictatorial regime for nearly half a century um, before the 70s. And so climate change maybe wasn't on the agenda. Um, There was low levels of education and like not much industrialization. So then when Portugal experienced a revolution in 1974. It obviously, from that, started a process of intense political, social and economic change and joined the European Union in 1986. And so from joining the EU, it's obviously been influenced a lot by the EU approach to climate change. And it's also ratified the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol. But you girls might want to say more on Portugal's approach to climate change. But Portugal's obviously pretty vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis. And over the last couple of years, it's experienced really huge, devastating events like a great fire, which obviously completely destroyed a lot of inner Portuguese land and forests. And yeah, last year, I remember reading that it had experienced the hottest summer on record. And so it's in a bit of a dire situation as all of us are experiencing. Um, And so obviously the climate change movement, movement and activism movement is super, super important. 
first of all, I would like to know what sort of prompted the climate change movement. I think actually you mentioning the dictatorship is actually very important because I think it molded, it shaped a bit the, um, the culture here and the mentality here. Uh, we don't have this uh, tradition of a very active democratic participation because of that, because it, it actually molded uh, society here to be a bit more conservative, a bit more fearful. And so actually that is something that is lacking maybe here in Portugal, I think, compared to other places that I've been and that I know of. Uh, but it is also, um, it makes it very, very important to take a position in a, in a society like this, that people are a bit more conservative, that they don't like to position themselves publicly. Uh, you know, we don't have that tradition because of um, dictatorial uh, violence towards people that would do it. Uh, so here, for example, uh, compared to other countries that had like uh, Second World War more actively, here people would do more like the resistance in, the, in a, you know, in a very hidden way. So that is something that is a bit different from other countries that I know of, like countries that XR is working on. It's, it's very different, I would say here. And we, we need a, like an extra dose of courage, I think, when, when we take a stance in a, in a place like Portugal, still very small and conservative. Uh, but we're, we're, we're going there <laughs> anyway. Regarding environmental policy here in Portugal, I would say we have a deep problem in what we call ordinamento do territorio, which is a territorial like administration. And that is, has been going on since the 80s, since we joined actually the European Union. Uh, we don't have like a strong forest policy, for example, and that makes it very difficult. Like each summer, we always have these forest fires. They're getting worse and worse every year. Like you said, there, there, there was a, like two years ago, I think, a big, big one, a big forest fire. They were becoming major, actually. And territorial administrative policy is very basic here in Portugal regarding water, regarding forests, regarding energy use. So it's a tough battle that we have to struggle with here, but, but that's what we're doing anyway. And I think we're so like behind on all these policies also because corruption plays a big part in, yeah, in, in these issues. So we have a lot to work on. <laughs> so you said in your introduction, you were helping to set up Extinction Rebellion in Portugal. So can you just tell us a bit about that? I'm not going to take any position on, you know, the Portuguese government and their policies because I don't think I know enough about it. And so I won't be giving so much of an opinion. But from what I've been living, I agree with Shella that there is a lot of work to be done. But that's also true in terms of education and in terms of access to technology and access to like a good standard of living. Like, for example, it's just uh, they had to close um, schools for two weeks, not only because of COVID, but also do no home learning at all for two weeks in Portugal, because they had to do an emergency plan in providing schools with uh, access to internet or even access to just kind of the basic form of computers. So that's kind of like what they're fighting, you know, the basic things that a lot of countries would have, including France and the UK. So. For me, when I arrived, like I was shocked because the first time I went to a protest, which was the day I decided to also kind of make a call to start Extinction Rebellion, was I think in early 2018, um, at the end of the year. And I was just going to a protest like, you know, against climate change, 
And I think there was like 150 people there. It was like, I was so shocked because I came from obviously Manchester where, you know, protest was just, I mean, and I'm French. So obviously, I mean, protesting is just part of our culture. And when I arrived, I was like a bit shocked and I was angry as well. You know, I was angry at Portuguese people in the first place, just because I was totally ignorant of what they were going through. So that's when I realized, well, okay, if we want to set up Extinction Rebellion in Portugal, there's going to be a huge amount of work. And that's just going to be coming also from the mindset because people don't protest. I think, as I agree with Shella, that, uh, you know, because they have been like conservative and affected so much by, um, you know, the dictatorship and corruption that there are also people who are really grateful for what they have today. Like I feel like even minimum wage and, you know, if they have just a minimum of what they need, they just feel like there is no need to protest, even though they complain. I feel like a lot of people complain about the system. I feel like they are grateful for the police and like the police, for example, they're grateful for the government. So when I started Extinction Rebellion, I was like very angry and I just really wanted to start something that would really change uh the way that activism would work in portugal <laughs> and literally what happened is i went to this protest i grabbed like the microphone they had there and i was like hello <laughs> so i'm Sneen, not from portugal <laughs> i want to set up extinction rebellion in, in in lisbon who is interested and we had like a paper that was going around and we collected a few email addresses and and that was it i mean i didn't after that you had a lot of passion and people that were passionate about it that we started meeting you know coming from a really good activism background in Portugal and and that's really that's how that's how I started uh, you know kind of small gathering yeah and like it was really thinking about how can we set up an extinction rebellion that is not like a UK or extinction rebellion but like a Portuguese one and I think that's when like Sheila and I can really share uh, you know our experience because we had to deal with uh, people who were not ready to to set up a movement that was totally decentralized and putting people mm-hmm. in the center. Was this the first ever climate change movement that existed in Portugal? Or have there been others that existed before then? No, there, there was already some collectives working on this theme, I would say. Parents for Future, you know, some of these small, like niche, little groups working on, on these themes. Some more towards like animal rights, some more towards uh, ending fossil fuels. And then you had, um, I would say, two or three collectives that were organized in in one, I would say, in a central system, you know, um, that already had their own ethos and pathos, you know, their own way of uh, looking at things. And XR was uh, something completely different. Uh, You have like three objectives and 10 uh, principles. It is very easy for you to grab that in any country in the world and to start your own XR. Uh, it's not like you you could grab this idea and not the principles and not the objectives. So that that for me and Dinesh, I think was was the main uh, issue because in the beginning, I think when thing when when XR was still uh, initiating in Portugal, I think uh, XR being such a great umbrella that welcomes every type of person and, and from all kinds of political sectors. Uh, it can be a bit tough, you know, in the beginning for you to really underline this this uh, this culture of respecting the, the the ten principles and the three objectives of of XR because everybody's coming with their own agenda inside of an organism like XR. So it's very difficult. You have 
uh, a lot of conflict, I would say, but conflict is normal also, I think, in, in activism, it's part of it. You shouldn't be afraid of it. But that, that for us was the main thing, to start uh, something that could be... Uh, that, that you, you would share with any other country that has an XR group, that we are organized and mobilized for these three principles and, and, uh, and ten, actually 10 principles and three uh, objectives. The three objectives are, the first one is um, to tell the truth and make governments tell the truth regarding uh, the situation we're in, which is an emergency for us, and that we should be mobilized Global, globally right now uh, to face this emergency like we did in the Second World War. So all resources, our strength should be put into uh, telling the truth and acting accordingly to that truth. The second one is that we should be uh, carbon neutral by 2025. That means net zero emissions. It's, it's very difficult uh, to say that uh, and to believe that, but we, have actu we actually have to ask for the impossible at this point because we're so behind. Yeah. We are so behind that we do have to be blunt and we have to face reality and say what, it, what is needed. So that is one of the uh, main things about the second principle, the other one. So, so for that, actually, you have to... Um, stop fossil fuels, uh, that is the main uh, thing. Uh, and the other one is to stop uh, biodiversity uh, loss, which mm -hmm. is a great concern also. It's not only about fossil fuels, it's about stopping uh, biodiversity. And that also is very linkable to the indigenous rights because yeah. actually it's the indigenous people all over the world that are the, you know, the, the, the saviors actually of this biodiversity. They are the keepers of like 25% of biodiversity that is still virgin in the world. And it's only 25%. Of, so it's situation is really, really dire, you know, <laughs> yeah. And the third principle is actually uh, citizens' assemblies. So since we don't trust the elites that are leading this, this process for 30 years, we are talking about all these issues and we see no structural systemic change. So we don't have political trust uh, in, in the elites to keep on leading this process. So we need radical democracy. We need democracy back to the people. And so we believe that it's the people informed by experts that should actually make the decisions and give these decisions then to government so they have to act mm -hmm. according to what the people decided. So this is a method we would use called sortition. So actually you make like a little, a little society, you know, you take a teacher, you take a taxi driver, you take common people and they are going to be presented with evidence and then they are going to decide. And so this is really important. And this is where we have the, the great resistance in other collectives. It was on this third principle that we need radical democracy and not party-based democracy to go forward in this issue of, of climate change. Uh, I, I would say that was the big uh, conflictual point in the beginning of XR. Mm. This might be a strange thing to ask, but if there was a revolution not so long ago in Portugal and like maybe the, the democratization is still like, is still happening, 
Um, mm -hmm. Do you think potentially harnessing this power back to the people could work better in somewhere like Portugal than it might in somewhere like England or I don't know I'm just thinking like is, could the boat be more easily rocked in somewhere like Portugal if you're saying that it's already a little bit unstable with corruption and stuff or do you think it, it actually just like perpetuates the problem? I think each country faces their own you know inner inner enemies I would say inner <laughs> like flaws you know if we don't have that experience maybe yes if you have less you are easily mobilized to fight for for something you know maybe the concern here is not so much about climate change maybe it's about housing maybe it's about other issues but what is important in my point of view is that you don't divide these issues the the struggles they built on themselves we shouldn't be divisive you know so a housing uh, problem it is a climate change problem it is a, a feminist problem it is a racial problem it is so that is very important i think having intersectionality of all these problems when we address them and for sure england must have their own built-in flaws in the system also a very conservative on politics at least very yeah. conservative very uh, you you guys must have your own issues that stop the revolution from you know from coming and i think each country is like that imagine xr in ghana the the things they are facing for example or xr in mozambique xr in palestine because there are all these xrs in all these places and all these places have their own flaws in the system that keep people to their knees let's put mm -hmm. it like that mm -hmm. and so i think it's very good that you have one organization that goes straight at the cool. issue which is the possible mm -hmm. extinction of you know the human race yeah and that makes it very easy uh, for people to organize uh, in their own realities in the local realities but they do have like a main objective and that is very important at this point i think you have always had like a background or an interest in activism so like how did you come to that growing up and like what led you to extinction rebellion okay. i would yeah. say that since little i always had interest in you know the world around me actually i was very opinionated since i can remember you know always uh and i would say i was like that throughout my teenage years actually um in the end of like my teenage years, beginning of adult life, 18, 19, something like that, I was already politically uh, active, I would say. Then we had a phase here in Portugal uh, when we had the sovereign crisis, uh, you know, the debt crisis, like from 2008 to 2000, and I would say like 12, 13. It was a very tough time here in Portugal. We had the Troika, we had the, uh, an intervention from like European Union, uh, World Bank, etc. Um, and we had this plan over Portugal of austerity, basically. So it was very, very, very tough for, I think, people of my age that we were just getting out of college and entering into, you know, adult life, you know, and uh, work. And that time was very tough for me. 
I also had my personal personal uh, issues at that time, dealing with things in the past that actually moved moved me towards feminism. So it was this mix of a very bad situation politically, economically in my country. Uh, me dealing with my own issues, actually a depression. So all of that created a little mix of discontent, but I wasn't active at that point in those years. But slowly, as I um, had my own process of dealing with my inner, inner issues, I actually started to be more and more active It was like my way out of the depression was was action, you know. And actually, it started with feminism when I joined the Reduit Marso, which is the feminist, uh, I wouldn't say collective because it's national, like each city as their own little uh, group, I would say. But actually, feminism was the first thing that got me a bit more, more active, needing to position myself in my own story, my personal story inside of feminism as a way of, you know, of action, you know, as Joan Baez says, is the antidote to despair. So for me, it was, that was the, the beginning of me getting a bit more active. And this coincided with the big fires in Portugal. Uh, in a small, you, you know, like two, three years, Brexit, Trump getting elected, Trump, Uh, signing out of the Paris Agreement, and a big one was the IPCC report. IPCC is um, an organism formed by uh, the UN and actually by scientists. Basically, they do this report on the end of the world, like I like to say, because they give you the real, not the real, actually it's quite conservative, the report, but they give you uh, an image of uh, how bad is it, basically, in mm. in. in in what planet Earth is facing right now. And I remember in 2008, the IPCC report comes out giving us 12 years to change basically everything or else we are doomed. So that was the, uh, that really shook me. And that was the exact more or less when I found out about XR. I didn't even know that there was already someone trying to begin XR in Portugal. But I remember being in this storm that I told, just told you, and then comes XR with these principles and these objectives. And I say, finally, after 30 years, I found something that I can agree with and that I can join and that I can be absolutely mo mobilized towards. So that was kind of my path until, until XR, I would say. And um, Inez, is that when you two became friends, I guess? Yeah, I guess when I met Sheila, I was very angry. And I think Sheila as well was very angry of, you know, the system and the government and all of that. And just, I mean, Sheila's reason to be an activist today really links with the reason why I I am or was and will be one day again an activist, I guess. It was just when I was younger, like reading in history books, like looking at all these people that, you know, made a change, like... Uh, by starting movements and I just I was you know in love with these people I was like they were so inspiring you know like these like unique people that would create a movement and would follow what they thought was right and actually made a change and when similar to Shella like when I started reading a lot more about climate change just because also the media started talking about it like I'm not gonna lie I wasn't 
going out there to find information. It's just I happen to be following the right news at the right time and having the right friends. And I'm really grateful for that. And that's why I also understand why some people are still in the bubble of thinking that climate change isn't real. I mean, it's it's really depends on like your education and and being again like with the right uh, people. Uh, but I was very angry, and it's it's really funny because Shella did say like climate change is the one thing that brings all the other injustices together. And you know, it used to drive me crazy to like like look at all these inequalities around the world, but also in our own countries and gender equality inequalities and like all of these things used to drive me crazy. And I felt like climate change was just one thing that could make you fight and stand up for all of these things without using up your energy into different conversations and movements and you just bring everything together. And yeah, and so, so yeah, exactly like, uh, like Sheila, like uh, XR, like there is one of the things that XR said is like, you just need 3% of the population to come together to make a change, like a radical change. And that was like, I was reading about it and listening to a lot of lectures of people that are part of XR talking about this, like it's a fact, it has been proved, you know, in research that if you gather 3% of the population to follow and really do activism together and nonviolent direct action, you can make a change. And that certainly gave me so much hope because even if at the beginning of XR in Portugal, we were maybe 10 or 15, just having some beers and, you know, having all these ideas on how we can make a change, I was like, these 10 people are just getting us closer to the 3% we need to really make a change. And that's when, yeah, when, when we met, I don't really remember because we met, I mean, there's so much that happened um, like at the beginning of it, but Sheila and I had the same anger that would drive us not only to get hope, but to have courage to go out there and, and share what we knew. I think it's important to, to explain why the 3.5% of population mobilized, why this number, you know. And also, Nish talked a lot about anger. And I think it's cool that we can talk about this uh, core value of XR, which is love and rage, why we use these both. And also the nonviolent direct action that Inesh talked about and civil disobedience. But I think these are important things for people that don't know XR, maybe, you know. Yeah, well, if you want to explain the, then the challenges or the, the situations that encompass those, so like if it's a love and rage thing, what do you mean by that? This is like a slogan in XR. It's something that we like, it's almost like the way you, you, you sign a letter. Each time you do something, you say love and rage. In the end of it, if you write a, a manifesto or if you do an action, you say love and rage, you know, because I think, these are two things that seem uh, to be in a contradiction, but they aren't. Uh, and those are the two things that actually mobilizes us because we love life. We want to have a good life, uh, a life with dignity. We do it for love. The things we do, uh, which is civil disobedience and uh, nonviolent direct action, which comes with, uh, which comes with a price. Uh, to pay for so we do it for love but we also do it with rage but with the I would say righteous rage not properly rage is not the same as even anger or hate rage is like a natural response to uh, injustice Mm. Uh, if you are a human being it is normal for you to feel rage if you are 
uh, faced with uh, in injustice or inequality, or so it is justified. Uh, it is uh, a just thing for you to use your rage to direct your uh, rage towards uh, action. But we do it with love. We don't do it in a we, we don't do it in a violent way. That is very important. It it is also important to for us as societies to have this discussion of what is violence you know is it mm -hmm. is it violent to break a glass for in civil disobedience uh when you are facing all the violence that the system itself puts onto people what is violence you know we have to have also this conversation i think as as, as societies but the reason why we do civil disobedience and direct non-violent action uh and why we talk about this 3.5 percent of uh, the population of a country, of the world, of a city, performing civil disobedience and, uh, and non-violent direct action uh, is because it is proven so. So basically, XR is born out of uh, activists of previous uh, movements like uh, Rise Up, like Occupy Wall Street, all these different movements. Uh, they are basically people that are sick of uh, waiting for 30 years of uh, bad policy towards climate change and also academics. And they gather around for like two or three years and they study which movements and in which way uh, these movements that actually um, performed great uh, systemic change like the civil uh, movements in, in the US in the 60s or for example, uh, Gandhi, Mandela, all these movements that actually created systemic uh, change, lasting change, what did they have in common? And what was in common is uh, nonviolence, because you have to have the sympathy of people that are never going to be mobilized. There are people that are never going to be as mobilized as the, these 3.5% of people. They are the initiators, I, I like to think of myself, of people like Inej, that people that are engaged with change, that we are the initiators. We're not going to be alone, I hope, uh, but we are the initiators and someone has to do it first. And, and in all these movements, what it took was people engaging together in nonviolence, protesting, but in nonviolence and defying the law when the law is unjust, you have the duty to uh, break the law so that, that is what we believe. If we are ruled by laws that actually are killing our, our environment, that are unjust to um, big parts of the population that put uh, these parts of population facing inequality, uh, facing systemic uh, oppression. So our moral duty is to break the law. So, so breaking the law actually elevates the, the the profile of our struggle it makes people look at us and say oh they mean business you know they 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 mean business uh they take us uh, seriously when we get out of our comfort zones and we take a stance a public stance and we break the law and we do this because we feel that we have no other option at this point because marches signing petitions we are we've we've, we've done everything and 
there is no real change. There is only symbolical, you know, great intentions from governments, you know, a lot of greenwashing, but there is no actual change. So what Sheila was talking about, about the love and rage, um, I feel like, you know, the, like you, you mentioned it well, it's like your rage has to be targeted uh, to be able to make a proper change. And that was one thing that was very challenging when we first started setting up XR is that, um, you know, the rage that people had was, you know, more than the love they would have. And there is another principle of, of XR that says, do not blame and do not shame. And I do feel like when you first start setting up a, a movement that is supposed to be decentralized, which means Technically, there is no leader. Everybody do their own thing. Everybody is valued for who they are. And it's power to the people. You will open doors as well for people that have rage to kind of control other people. So I don't know how to explain this. Like someone will arrive inside the organization with, um, will, with like an ego that is so big, but also an ego that is fed by rage. So it comes from like a good place. Like I understand why these people would be, you know, so fed up of the system and so fed up of the policies that have never been changed, that they would come and feel like it's a moment for them to also shine within their rage. And it's very hard to communicate when there is rage. And I think the movement that we wanted with Shella was with much more love. And like we ended up having, you know, assemblies of Extinction Rebellion, uh, continuous debate. And I think we've lost people along the way because it was lacking of love. It was lacking of love for ourselves. It was lacking of love for the others. It was lacking of, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt to people that might be coming from jobs that are bad for the environment or that have a lifestyle that don't fit within the per se like XR and sustainable way of living. But at the end of the, of the day, this shouldn't matter because we are all here together to make a change, right? We all come here for a reason. And I felt like one of the challenges that we had with, uh, with Sheila is that we really missed that love at some point at the beginning, like that, that kind of like support that we would have given to one another and saying like, you know what, what you're doing is great. Like it's a like, good job. But we had people in the in the group that were pointing out and always saying that it was not enough, that the way we were doing things were not good enough. And at some point it felt very humiliating, uh, you know, because we were all learning. And I feel like in some of these movements, you will find activists that have been activists for much longer than you. And some of them are so like egocentric, like they have such a big ego that is very hard to communicate. And so that is, one challenge that we had that I guess like it was important to also uh, bring it up and love in activism is so important. Like it's so important. Like the rage will give you the energy, but the love will target this rage into the right places. Not like in individual blaming and shaming, but in something that is much bigger, you know? And that was, that was one thing like if I had to go back properly into activism, like I would prioritize love rather than rage because that's what like love can, drive you crazy and make you do crazy things whereas rage like it will create more conflict than than what it should be so at this point when you started to sense conflicting egos and how many people were in the organization by this point how how big was the movement i i think this was still in in the earliest of phases uh, I would divide like the, um, the experience here of uh, the organization in Portugal in like two or three phases, a very, very initial phase where we had 
people like me and Dinesh, for example, only wanting to be part of XR, and we had other activists who were part of other collectives, I would say, uh, then you had a phase where people from these other collectives, they, mm, since they felt they kind of constructed the movement, they had this uh, coordination group. And I would say the third phase is when many of the activists uh, proposed to do a restructuring of this coordination. And this created, um, so actually a, a, a proposal to restructure XR in Portugal, having only in mind the, the, the international uh, principles and objectives. And this was not very well received by the people that were the previous XR coordination. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of them left the organization at that point. And I would say this is when it, XR in Portugal really took off with the, the real principles, the real objectives, all uh, and, and following the international movement and not really the ways things were made before XR existed in Portugal, because this was the great conflict. I think at least in my uh, personal experience, I wanted to be part of XR, not of uh, other um, collectives that it's okay. It's their own choice. They have other ways of doing, of doing their actions, uh, but maybe they don't respect these principles that Inez was uh, mentioning, you know, of not pointing uh, fingers uh, at individuals, for example, because we know that we are a product of a toxic, toxic system. We are not pointing fig fingers at individuals because no individual is to blame of the context that we are built in, uh, born uh, in, actually. Uh, all, other principles weren't respected and it's okay. We don't have to be all working in the same way and in the same uh, co collectives. But for us, it was very important that XR to exist as this image, as this movement that is very easily uh, democratized and uh, very easily picked up and, and uh, anybody can be XR if you follow these these principles and ob objectives it for us it was very important that we had our own independence that we respected these principles for example power mitigation is one of our principles decentralized um, uh, organization is one of our principles um, having regenerative uh, ways of dealing with conflict and really working towards this, these regenerative ways of doing things, of designing, you know, relationships with each other, with nature, uh, in, in economy. And so this, this is, is a very clear way uh, that we, in XR, this is, this is very clear to us. This is the way for us. So we don't want to do things in a very traditional, uh, I would say 10 years ago, politics. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to do it in that way. We have one of our, also our principles is that we have a shared vision of change. So we do have to have this clear vision of what we want. And between the second and the third phase, I think is when the organization actually flourished in numbers, at least, you know, and that we had our biggest actions. And then I would say the third phase, uh, we were already getting very organized uh, and moving already with these principles already built in ourselves and our actions. And then came the pandemic.
And so, you know, it was, uh, and it still is a very hard moment, not only for XR, I would say all collectives are suffering at this point. And I think it's not only Portugal also. It's very difficult to take to the streets, make protests, possible, make actions. Uh, I'm going to talk for myself, at least. I'm not a Zoom activist. I can't, you know, I need human connection to, to be engaged. So uh, I'm still active, but not nearly as I was before. And um, I think many of us activists are like using this time to gather strength, to take care of each other, because we're not certain of what's coming next, actually, politically, globally, etc. But um, I would say, yeah, since the pandemic, it's been really difficult to organize uh, since the pandemic. Ines, it sounded like you started to pull away from it all. And I just wondered at what point you started to feel like it was not the right area for you or, um, yeah, your feelings about it all, personal or not. Yeah, well, that's a very good question, I guess. There is like some stuff as well I wanted to add on what Shella was just talking about, but it is a very good way for me to explain why I decided to step back a little bit and do different things than just being involved with XR. Um, so basically, there is also a principle of XR, which is we are apolitical. This word kind of doesn't mean anything because what we do is purely politics, like, to be honest. But we shouldn't be associating, uh, you know, the movement to anything, any political parties. So you can have your opinion as an activist on, you know, who you want to vote for at the elections or which policies you think this party or this party should implement to make a real change, but you shouldn't bring that with you uh, to, to any actions or any type of, especially public actions that will be covered in the media. And so when we started doing our first actions, like nonviolent direct actions, which would include like and, you know, kind of dying in front of like stores like H&M or dying in front of the Minister of Agriculture. Like we had different ways, like we were trying out to understand what would work best. We had this movement uh, that was it's called Climaximo, it's pretty active in, in, in Portugal, that wanted to kind of work with us on, on this. And like at the beginning, we we're kind of excited. We we're like, yeah, more people is very important. But what we realized is that we were so lucky in the first place because XR was already kind of so big in Europe. Like even if it was the beginning of it, we had, we felt like we were part of a big family and media, especially in the UK and in France, were already interested about Extinction Rebellion. So we knew that we had a bit of disadvantage when we were taking actions that we knew that some media would be interested to know why, what are we doing, where are we going? And so when Climaximus started to join us, there were, um, you know, they were much more prepared than us uh, in, in doing these type of actions because they've been doing them, I guess, for longer for a longer time. Uh, but when we were doing actions, they were naming themselves as we are Climaximo and we are doing this with the name of Climaximo, knowing that some people in Climaximo were directly linked to a political party in uh, Lisbon, in Portugal. And so when the name Climaximo would come up or the name of some of the people that were interviewed after actions would come up, 
journalists would make the link straight away of Extinction Rebellion and Climaximo being with uh, this political, political party. And that's when Sheila and I started to realize like this is a violation of one of our principles. Like we really need to bring it up. Like it's not even our principle, it's the principle of Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And when we started to bring it up, this um, the, the Climaximo movement, kind of created tensions in between people. You could understand that people suddenly wanted to get their voice heard and wanted to give their opinions. And that's when the movement started to kind of fragment a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in Maximo, you had this uh, pretty much this kind of setup that was the opposite of what we wanted in XR. You had kind of a leader and then everybody else would follow. And most of the people in Maximo were Portuguese which I think also it's due to the fact that, you know, we never, before, like, I mean, during the revolution or even during the dictatorship, like you would just follow whatever the government would tell you. And I think Portuguese uh, people are now learning how to stand up for themselves, but for a long time, the voices have been shut. So they were just following the voice of one leader, the one that would be the loudest basically. And this guy was fucking loud to be fair. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and, And so, Everything used to be conflicting. And obviously, we were overthinking a lot, Michelle, at this point. We were like, what should we do? Like, do we call Extinction Rebellion in the UK? Like, we need help. Like, we need to gather people. And every single assembly that we used to have with Extinction Rebellion, it was just Climaximo and Extinction Rebellion arguing. And basically, me kind of being in the in the middle because it was easier to blame one person. It was Shella and I, to be honest. Like, uh, Shella, but Shella was really much into, you know, like, I don't want to deal with them. Like, these guys are wrong. And what we need to do is to get them out of the movement so that we can continue growing Extinction Rebellion based on our values and on the right values. Whereas I was more kind of the diplomatic. And at this time, it was like a year and a half ago or something. I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I literally couldn't take it. Like I was feeling, I was doubting myself. I was feeling shit about myself. I was, I didn't have the strength anymore to to continue fighting. And so, so I left. I left because I was too scared of going back into one more meeting where I would have had to go through uh, defending myself and defending Extinction Rebellion, I, I was just, I was just completely, and I'm, I'm literally shaking right now. But it was, it was traumatizing. Like it was really traumatizing. And yeah. along the way, I, I lost a lot of friends, including Shella, because Shella and I don't speak so much anymore because we're busy in our own lives. But you know, it was like, it was something so beautiful that we could have built. But now my, like because I, I suffered a lot from this, from you know, this kind of conflict. I. I just wasn't strong enough to be an activist. And that's something that is like important is like activism, as you say, Sheila, is like conflict is good. And I just think at that time I was lacking of self-love and love in general. And it was really hard for me to, to continue fighting, you know? Mm. I don't quite agree with that because I think it is the sensitive people, the empathic people that we need in activism and not the loudest people, the, the most, oh, yeah. you know? I, I strongly believe that we need people that that uh, are empathic, that feel things, that besides yeah. because we already had so many revolutions that got us nowhere, just you know, based on violence. We need other types of revolution uh, that are more inclusive, that uh, that uh, leave no one behind. And this is the type of thing that we were trying to and that we built in a way in, to to a, oh, to, sure. a, to a yeah 100%. to an extent. 
I don't agree with you, Ines, that you shouldn't be an activist. <laughs> I, I really, I really think people like us, touchy-feely, you know, people, we, we actually are very necessary to the, uh, everybody's necessary, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's lacking, you know, of people like us, maybe a bit in these very politically active uh, environments. But that said, yeah, it's true. The process was very difficult. We we had to face a bit of um, a structure that was already put into place that already had a lot of actual, we have to say it, men on the, you know, on the top of the pyramid. Of, of and that structure. was in XR as well. No, no, no. That that would be the part where we had this external coordination from yeah. another collective called Climax, yeah. like in, in Ishtar. They had already like uh, their way of uh, doing things, of organizing. We wanted to go the international way, and um, and it was a great struggle. It came a time where, uh, like in Ish, and like in Ish said, also a lot of people were, you know. Uh, heartbroken with the process, uh, tired of the process, traumatized with the process because there was a lot of uh, gaslighting, a lot of bullying in the process because power is power and power is the nature of power is to it is to corrupt uh, you know anywhere where you find it either in governments, in collectives, in parties, that is why we believe in, in power mitigation, because power has its own, you know, uh, dynamic in, in corrupting people. And mm -hmm. we were trying to uh, protect the movement from that. So it was a very difficult struggle, actually, uh, even after Ineas um, going out of the movement, it was always uh, girls and women that were like trying to restructure, doing the critique, doing the inner critique, because all through this time, the what we did, people that wanted to have an independent XR in Portugal, what we did was, okay, we're going to stay in the movement, we are going to better processes, democratic processes, uh, decision-making processes, we are going to try to better it from the within and have more people. The mm -hmm. more people we have, the more opinions we'll have and the more needs for freedom, more people will ask for freedom to do their own actions to do. So actually that works, actually it worked because people that were joining, uh, they wanted to join XR. They didn't want it to join some other collective. So the people that were coming, they were coming with the same uh, energy that we had in the beginning before we were bullied. So actually this, uh, this, this actually worked and it got to a point where we were, uh, we had to be heard. So we moved this proposal mm. and it's democracy. We won the vote. And so we want to, you know, to, to follow international values and principles. We had more people on our side and that's how we had uh, an independent XR in Portugal or else we, we would still have this external uh, coordination of people only uh, belonging to this other collective.
I was just going to come back to one thing that you were saying about having different types of people from different vocations, different backgrounds, like it, everyone is important to be part of the movement because you can't exclude anyone. And I just wondered, do you think as well XR had a branding of being really quite creative with its demonstrations? And that, like I would say I found that attractive, like even to read about on the news, it was it was cool. It was something new, like you said, and, and you guys were saying that you were trying, like in as you were saying you were trying out fake dyeing in front of H&M and I remember seeing photos of it of you putting up but it's just amazing like that captures the attention and yeah I just wondered whether you, that was something that you guys were really trying to capitalize on like were yes. yeah I think uh, XR is a very strong image strong we don't we are not afraid of saying branding it's branding we want to make it as uh, easiest to copy as you can. So anywhere in the country, in a city, in a small village, uh, you can start your own nucleus of, uh, of XR. So, so that is very important. Uh, and also um, that actions should be done, if you can at least, should be done in a performative way. Mm. Yes, it, we are in a dire situation, but let's have fun while we do it. Let's be together while we do this let's you know celebrate human relationship while we do this and let's do it in a way that uh it's not only confrontative you have those moments you have moments with the police you have those moments but also to de-escalate sometimes the 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 situation with the authorities and also to bring more attention to the actions we do these performative uh, uh actions uh, for example, we had one that's where I met actually Inej uh, in the preparation of this of this performative uh, action, uh, where we use some of the techniques that are very known in uh, in XR, which are, for example, die-ins. Uh, the example that Inej just just gave, you pretend that uh, at a certain moment many uh, activists perform uh, uh, perform that they are dead. Uh, you know, all sorts of things like um, to, to capture the attention, like having fake blood over us, you know, uh, we already had another one with fake oil, you know, uh, over us. And of course, the other, the other techniques also, it's roadblocks, other kind, uh, types of per performative and also confrontative actions at the same time and all these li little things that might seem you know details when you organize an action but for example if you do a roadblock let's bring some cookies to the drivers you know always try to uh, accommodate these two realities once again love and rage we are trying to to always accommodate these two realities in one while we when we do actions and try to be performative, try to be creative while we do it. Because mm. it works better, I think. Clearly. Emotions are very important because, again, it's the same thing as rage and love. And, you know, I've been to so many meetings. And even when at the beginning we were giving out, uh, you know, a lot of trainings and presentations on climate change and just, you know, at the end of the world, basically, you'd have people crying and, and you know, crying in front of you. And, like, I would even cry while saying, like, how dramatic the situation was. Like, I mean, every time I was doing a presentation, realizing that we are literally getting there, like the tipping point and, you know, the no comeback, the no return point, let's say. 
And so, yeah, so emotions, again, like, yeah, I do agree with Sheila, are very important. And one thing that XR does is that it makes you stronger and makes you use these emotions mm-hmm. to, as you did, Sheila, I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier, like, you were in a depression and what got you out is this energy to act, right? And so emotions are very important at the beginning, which is what I agree with Sheila. And when I went to another meeting after I left Extinction Rebellion, I went and I joined an assembly where, you know, there was still like a few people standing, but there was like a lot of new people that, as Sheila said, came for Extinction Rebellion. And it was beautiful. I was like, that was like, that was the XR where you could talk about your concern, where you could uh, be vulnerable and where you could cry, where you could hug people because you're scared, where you could express your fears. Like that was the XR that I, we wanted in the first place and Sheila and like all the other people managed to make it happen. So for anyone in Portugal hearing this, please do join Extinction Rebellion in Portugal. It's absolutely amazing right now. But yeah, at the stage where I was before, I think, uh, yeah, I, my emotions overtook my strength and I was not able to fight anymore. And so, yeah, it made me stronger for what it was. And I really hope I will be joining it again soon once everything goes back to normal. But uh, so I agree, Shella, emotions are very, very, very important in these situations. And we like we are supposed to be here for one another because what is happening is dramatic, is sad and is very scary. So you have the right to cry. That's amazing. Um, Thank you so much, Chela and Inez. It's been so great to speak to you. And I think such an inspiring episode to kind of hear how you guys came together to start such an important organisation. But also, I think a lot of lessons about some of the challenges within activism. And there's definitely a lot of lessons to be learned from you guys. So yeah, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And I really hope everyone at home has enjoyed listening. If you have any specific questions for us or for Shayla or Inez, please do get in touch. Um, Just drop us an email or get in contact via social media. So yeah, have a good day, everyone. If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast, then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website, referenced in the show notes. We host a blog on there too, as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram accounts at earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.